going to get into Zechariah. It is so uh, necessary that we see Christ for who he really is. That we have some kind of encounter with the living Lord in our life. And that encounter uh, in our lives uh, with Christ might, might come in, in different ways and in different fashions. But the Lord has uh, called us to really to know him. And what a, uh, what a shame it would be to go throughout the whole of life and have an understanding of Christ to some capacity, even a knowledge of God and knowing God to some extent, but never coming into an intimate, real relationship with him as Lord and Savior. It, it's possible, it is very possible to sing all these songs and be un, unmoved. It's, it's possible to pray and not know God. Possible to pray in some sense to Jesus and not know God. It's possible for him to be walking right beside us and us be cheering his name and excited for what we think he is. And so we're we're moved by who we think Christ is, but yet we never we never really get who he is. And God wants us to understand who he is as he has revealed himself. His aim for us is not to know Christ with our own imagination, a God that we have created, even a God named Jesus, but a different Jesus, as Paul preached, a different Christ than the Christ of the scriptures. It's very possible to make up an imaginary Christ and to serve him your whole life. He doesn't even really exist. And so the important matter of Scripture is to come to Scripture and say, Jesus, how have you really revealed yourself? Because I really, I want to know you. I want to know you and your power and your glory. I want to know you as you have revealed yourself. I've sat down, I remember speaking for uh, quite some time with um Jehovah Witnesses who came to our house and talking with them and speaking with them and they had a very clear understanding in their mind of who Jesus was. And yet they didn't know Jesus. They had a they had a different gospel, they had a, a different Jesus, and they wouldn't they wouldn't actually hear the words of Scripture in their context and in all their power and all their glory. And so it's possible not only to go to a cult like that and to be bamboozled into believing into a false Christ, but it's possible to sit in a Bible-believing church Sunday after Sunday and not really revel in who the Christ of Scripture is. One of the greatest prayers that we could pray is, Lord, reveal, us, reveal to us you as you have revealed yourself within the pages of Scripture. 
Jesus, I want to know you for who you really are, not a faux you, not a false you. The danger is coming to know a Christ that is no true anointed one, no true Messiah at all. We see his salvation in this text that we have been going through here in Zechariah chapter 9. And we said last week that verses 1 through 8 so beautifully depict what has already transpired and has happened within history, namely the conquering of these enemies of God by Alexander the Great. And yet we gave this stunning account how when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem, instead of taking it as he had planned, encountered the high priest and his priestly garments and encountered all of the different priests in their white outfits and said, I'm not going to take Jerusalem. He remembered back to a dream that he had had and said, this is exactly what I had dreamed. And so he actually fulfilled in this obscure way, because we don't read about his name here in the text of Scripture. We don't see anywhere in verses 1 through 8 where it actually gives us the name of Alexander, and that's purposeful. Uh, that's by the plan of the Holy Spirit. He wants to make sure that the glory does not go to Alexander. So he gives us this text in which Alexander fulfills these different scriptures. And yet he doesn't spell out his name so that we can dig within history and see this was so clearly fulfilled, these verses were so clearly fulfilled by this Alexander the Great, and yet the glory is going to be pointed to someone else. And he fulfilled verse 8 where it says, And I will encamp, that is, the Lord will encamp at my house, that is, Jerusalem, that is, Judah, so that none shall march to and fro, that is, Alexander will not be able to conquer this city. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. And Alexander would come in in this intimidating way. He had a horse named uh, Bucephalus which means ox head, and uh, this horse was uh, not tameable, and uh, this beautiful black stallion, taller than any other horse, and so they were going to get rid of the horse because no one could tame it until Alexander realized um, that it was actually afraid of its own shadow and turned the horse around and was able to tame it. And he would ride this intimidating, yet this majestic stallion into battle. And there's some controversy over exactly how this uh, animal died, whether he simply died of uh, old age, or which is likely, or whether he died in battle. But this was quite the sight. You can imagine you're one of these cities, and here comes Alexander on his dear friend, this horse that he deeply loved. And here he comes riding into battle on this majestic steed, this horse that is taller than any other horse, this beautiful shining black horse, and he's riding it into battle, and there's a, there's a sense of intimidation, there's a, a, sense, a sense of uh, majesty as he, as he comes in. And so people would see him coming in on the horizon. There is 
the majestic Alexander on his horse, Bucephalus. What a, what a sight that must have been. Now, we don't, uh, we don't ride horses to church anymore. In fact, we have, um, we have this new thing called cars, which we uh, tend to get in and, and go to church. But it's amazing to think about, um, you know, even 100 years or so ago, people were still riding horses around. My, uh, my grandmother, born in 1922, I often think about her life and all that she has seen, the transition that she has seen in, in society. And she could tell you stories about still remembering horses being ridden around even in in her day. So this was this is something that was very commonplace for all of history until recently. And of course, people still ride horses uh, today. And some are very good riders, and some are are not so good. And um, that's they go into a different direction and get themselves in themselves in all kinds of trouble. But here is um, here is Alexander riding on this beautiful horse into battle, this horse that he takes care of year after year was possible that it died after being 30 years of age, living a good long life for a horse. So here's, here's the picture, Alexander coming into battle, this, uh, this king who is, is conquering city after city, state after state. And you would think that that would be perhaps the focal point of this text. So we look at this text, and we don't see Alexander, but we know from the historian Josephus that this is exactly what is being talked about. And we have talked about the, the majesty of the scripture being fulfilled. You can, you can look at history, and you can see that Alexander did absolutely conquer each of these cities, just like the text said. We can see that just as the scripture says here, he did not conquer Jerusalem. You say, well, why, why are we talking so much here about Alexander and his horse? Who, who cares? Because the scripture wants to give us a tremendous contrast. It wants us to understand the glory of God. It wants us to understand the specific fulfillment of this text in Alexander. But the glory is not to be given to him. The glory is to be given to somebody else. So... The Holy Spirit has this way of saying, I'm going to obscure this and yet make it possible so that people can find the, the correct interpretation to these verses, understand exactly what they're saying. But I want to give the point, I want to give the fame to someone else. And it's rather unexpected. So we have this contrast that is rather stark it is rather obvious of verses 1 through 8, and then we get to verse 9. Why don't you flip with me to verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9. So here's Alexander. That needs to be put in our mind. And here is verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And this would be fulfilled again to the letter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
but it's not Alexander. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. So this is talking about the way that he rules and reigns. He has a righteous nature. He is completely pure. He's completely holy. He's completely righteous, has uh, never done anything wrong. The scripture talks about him being spotless and without blemish. That's this king. The scripture here is very clear here to say it's your king. Behold, your king is coming to you. The absolute sovereign, the one who will rule and reign. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and salvation and having salvation is he. So what does he have? What is the purpose of this king's coming? Well, he's righteous. But he also has salvation. This is the reason he is coming. This is exactly what Zechariah is prophesying hundreds of years before this king comes. And he says, I want you to, I want you to get this. I want you to understand why he's coming. He's not coming like this other king on this majestic stallion. This stallion that would produce wonder. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. That's the Holy Spirit's power. How, how can the Holy Spirit put such beautiful words like this together so that we are clear in our mind as to what is going on? He's saying, I'm giving you a contrast. And the contrast is between Alexander the Conqueror, who comes in on this steed, majestic, and yet your king is coming to you, O Zion. Your king is coming to you, O Jerusalem. He's coming, he has righteousness and he has salvation that he has with him he's giving he is offering but oh how different humble humble not coming in with a sword not coming in with military might no brigade no foot soldiers traveling with him no army that is marching behind him. A simple man on a, on a donkey. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. A foal of a donkey. So he says, here's, here's your king. This is the king who is coming to you. And he's not coming on Bucephalus but he is rather coming on an unnamed donkey. And what is he coming to save us from? Well, God first saved his people from Alexander, but this, this first coming of this king would be a different war that he was going to save his people from. He would be saving them from their war with God. So instead of coming in and conquering a people and setting himself up as an earthly king at that point, this humble king comes in 
and deals with the greatest problem that we all have, the problem, the fact that we are at war with God. He could have said, I'm not going to deal with this at all. But every person in this room, every person who has ever been born, is at war. And our greatest problem is not the nations of the earth that may perhaps attack our nation. The greatest problem that we have in our life, being born, being born into sin, is the fact that we are at enmity, at war with God, every one of us. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Why don't you flip with me, with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind, for the mind that is set on the flesh, for the mind that is set on the flesh, fleshly things, worldly things. For the mind that is carnal, the mind that has not been regenerated, the mind that has not been sanctified, this mind, the scripture is saying, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So what is the scripture saying here? The scripture is saying that the way that we are born, the way that we come into this life, is that our mind, the way that we think, it's hostile to God, we're enemies with God, and we cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We are powerless. So this is why some people are able to manage an exterior form of where it looks like they are submitting to the law of God. But the scripture says it's the mind, the heart that is hostile to the things of God. So we come into this world saying, God, our fists are up in the air. We're ready to fight with God. This, this whole notion of, um, of people just being on this spiritual journey. And, you know, I've been, I've been on this spiritual journey for my whole life. I've just been on this wonderful uh, uh, crusade for, for God on his side, and I'm looking for God. I, I'm just on this spiritual encounter looking for, looking for him. And we have we have all sorts of all sorts of talk shows of uh, people that have spiritual encounters spiritual encounters with with God people who are on this um, spiritual journey. No, no. Listen, the scripture is very clear. We we do not come into this world. We do not come into this world seeking out the true God. I was recently uh, talking with. Uh, some people about our testimony. And I was talking to them about the fact that oftentimes when we, uh, when we have baptisms here in the church, when we immerse people in water, that we always sit down and we talk with them about their testimony. Because oftentimes people some, sometimes uh, do not articulate what has actually happened with, within their heart. And so they'll, they'll get up and they'll say something like this. They'll say, you know, I've, I've been on this journey with God my whole life. I've had some encounters with God. I haven't always done the, the right thing in my life. I've, you know, I've done some wrong things. But I've always known that God was there. 
And even though I wasn't quite walking with the Lord at different times in my life, I finally decided to really go ahead and, and really get committed with God. Amen. And then that's kind of the end of the testimony, and then it's let's dunk them in, in water. And what we have said is that's no testimony at all. Every person can talk about knowing God as we talked about earlier. People may even have powerful spiritual encounters where they say, well, I saw a vision of this or I saw a vision of, of that. The question is, is not whether we have these uh, spiritual encounters. The question is whether we ever get to the point in our life where we recognize what the scripture says. And this is why it comes back to our mind being reformed our mind being regenerated and renewed where we say, God, at one point in my life, the truth of the matter was, is I was not born into this life seeking you. I wasn't born into this life trying, on, trying to get on this spiritual journey where I'd find you. Lord, according to your scripture, my mind was hostile to you. Lord, I, I didn't want to do what you wanted me to do. Perhaps I submitted to some of these things because my dad or my mom made me. Or perhaps it was the right thing, but God, in my own mind, I despised your law. And uh, I didn't like it. Whenever I heard the word being preached, there was something within me that reeled against it. I, I didn't like it inside. And that's what the scripture is saying. And it's saying here that there's nothing that you can do within your own power. For it says it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. James chapter 4, if you flip with me over to James chapter 4, James chapter 4, verse 4, says this, James 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, here it is, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, that is being the enemy having a relationship based upon a severing, is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why do we belabor this? Why do we talk about this? We, we see God being so concerned about this. We see this all throughout Scripture. Here the Lord comes in mounted on a donkey. Instead of um, doing what we think he might do, he comes in humbly, and the scripture says that what he has to offer, what he has to offer is salvation. That's what he has to offer. What does the Lord have to offer? He has salvation to offer. And at first the people didn't get this. They thought, here's the potential. Even being on a donkey didn't put them off. They thought, well, this is just a symbol of peace. He's not coming to war with us. But perhaps we can set him up as king, and he can go fight our enemies for us. Look with me at Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, verse, Matthew 21, verse 5. The scripture that is given in Zechariah 9 is fulfilled and repeated here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 4. This took place, Christ going into Jerusalem on a donkey. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. There it is. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I want you to notice something here. So here comes, here comes the king. And um, people are in the presence of the king, the, the, the majestic one. And they have their own ideas about him. This is, this is why we said it's so important to get Christ right in context. Because if you looked at this crowd in Matthew chapter 21, you would think to yourself, this is a really good religious crowd. You would think to yourself, this is a great group of Christians. Because here you have the presence of Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. And here he is passing on a donkey. And people aren't saying to themselves, you know, turning their back on him, saying, who is he? You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to praise him. I'm not going to. I'm not going to get excited about him. In fact, they fulfill the scripture in Zechariah chapter nine to the letter. They're rejoicing. They're they're waving their hands. This is a charismatic group of worshipers. Here they are. They're waving their hands before the Lord. They're saying things like Hosanna, which means save now. They're even saying the prayer. So they're waving their hands in the air. Save now, save now. And if we, if we were listening to this prayer, we would think to ourselves, this is the sinner's prayer. They're saying the prayer. They're singing the music. They understand who this is. And yet here Jesus goes by on this donkey. And the scripture tells us here, here, they, have, here they have everything lined up in place. They're praying. They see Jesus, they're saying all of the right things. In fact, they have in their mind what they want to do with Jesus. That has been told to us in John 6. Why don't you flip over with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 15. John chapter 6, verse 15. Here's what they wanted to do with Jesus. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him, here it is, to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So here they are. They want to set him up as king. But they really don't know him. They don't understand why he came. There wasn't a full understanding or a, even a desire to go after him for who he really was. And then there's this sad ending, at least from their perspective. Look what happens. You have them all excited, and here comes, here comes the king, the king of Israel. John chapter 19, flip over there with me. John chapter 19, verse 14. John chapter 19, verse 14. So Pilate is talking, and he says, um, the scripture says, now it was the day of preparation, John 19, 14, the day of uh, the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. 
he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And just think about this. Just earlier that week, they had been they had been praising him just, just one week before Palm Sunday. You're the king. We want to set you up as king. Now, just days later, he presents him to the Jews, and he says, Behold your king. Now, listen to what they cry out. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. How can you go within a matter of days from Sunday to Friday? How can you go from Sunday to Friday where in on one day you are shouting Hosanna, save now, saying the sinner's prayer in essence. And later on, on Friday, you're saying, we don't even want him as king. He's not our king. In fact, our only king is Caesar. You see, it was their plan for their king that fell apart. They didn't understand this king's plan. So they said, if he's not going to behave like the king that we want him to be for us, then he's not the king who's going to rule over us. They didn't understand the king's sovereignty. They didn't understand the king's lordship. To drive this home just one more time, go to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Here's, here's what the king came to do. He came to save his people from their war with God. You say, well, where do we get that in the scripture? Notice what it says here. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, that is, to be declared righteous, the legal forensic act of being declared righteous, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. Saved from what? Saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. So what does this king come to do on his mission? He comes for one purpose to save his people from their sins. And frankly, that's not a very exciting message to the world. The world says, you know what? Forget the prayer. Put the palm branches away. Get up the robes. Pack it up. Let's head home. Not exciting enough. What is shocking about this passage 
is that this could have been God's war on humanity. He could have come on a horse like Bucephalus and wiped us all out. That, that could have been the account that we read because that would have been just, that would have been right. But all the glory goes to him because as we read this unexpectedly, gloriously, he has come to make his enemies his friends. Before we understood or appreciated what he was doing. That's the glory of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Your king is coming to you on a donkey. Let's pray. I'm not going to have the worship team come this morning. We're just going to close with the doxology. But before we do that, with every head bowed and every eye closed, Lord, what a contrast you give us. And only the way that you can give us, pointing us to the central person of all of Scripture, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can tell us about the majesty of Alexander the Great without making him the point of the passage. That's only something you can do, Lord. And Lord Jesus, it's only like you to come and die for sinners like us at war with God, to save us from a war we don't even think we need or are involved in. And yet you knew our greatest need. Lord, I, I pray if there's one here who is at war with you, the mind at enmity with God, that they would hear your voice calling them today and they would say, Jesus, I, I receive you as my king. And I don't come to you with any religious agenda. I'm not coming to make you the king that I want you to be, but I'm coming to bow my knee to the king that you already are. That's you, and you're seated here. I'd like to give you the opportunity. Perhaps you're, maybe you're a very religious person, but you need Christ, and you need him for the first time. And you would say, today is a day that I would like to surrender my heart to the king's plan for my life that you would you raise your hand I need Jesus to be my king the king of my heart is there anyone here today anyone else the king of my heart the king of my heart thank you Lord the king of my heart you've been at war with God and the war needs to come to an end Jesus has come to set you free today he who the son has set free as we sang earlier is is free indeed. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the one. Thank you for the one. Thank you for the one. Lord Jesus, you, your, your word is so attractive to us as you have called us. You have made this, this word beautiful to us, Lord. 
pray that your name would be blessed and honored. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand with me.